0: Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's Podcast. I'm Jonathan Malabrity. Today we have a fascinating episode where we're covering one of the Stones' greatest albums, Let It Bleed, and the tragic end to Brian Jones' career and life. Before we begin, don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, at Rock Band's Podcast, and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Alright, let's get to it. Rolling Stones, Part 10. After releasing Beggar's Banquet and filming Rock and Roll Circus, the Stones parted ways for the Christmas holidays in December of 68. They had indefinitely shelved Rock and Roll Circus, and it wouldn't be seen by the general public for years to come. Beggar's Banquet, though, was really the beginning of a golden era for the band, and just a couple short months after its release, they were already working on their next album. The Rolling Stones officially began recording material for their follow-up album in February of 1969. However, arguably the best song on the album and one of the Stones' most enduring hits was recorded a few months prior, in November of 1968. Mick Jagger is really responsible for You Can't Always Get What You Want. He started writing the song on acoustic guitar, and he had a pretty big vision for it. Jagger really liked what the Beatles did on Hey Jude, how they had a chorus of people singing that trademark na-na-na-na part building into the crescendo, and he wanted to create a similar song for the Stones. Mick Jagger said of Hey Jude, quote, I liked the way the Beatles did that on Hey Jude. The orchestra was not just to cover everything up, it was something extra. We may do something like that on the next album, unquote. When you listen to You Can't Always Get What You Want, it sounds like there's a lot going on, but there's actually only three Rolling Stones playing on it Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Bill Wyman. Brian Jones wasn't at the session, so he didn't contribute to the song at all. And Jimmy Miller plays drums because Charlie Watts couldn't quite get the feel right. Jimmy Miller was a fantastic studio drummer, and a few times over the next couple years, he would sit in for Charlie Watts. You Can't Always Get What You Want took a while to develop, and like I mentioned before, the most notable aspect of the song, that choir part, wasn't added until later, in March of 69, when Mick and the Stones employed a 50-piece choir to add an intro and an outro to the song. Around this time, the band also put some time in on some other songs they were developing, like Gimme Shelter, which had developed into a really strong song. The song had started as a manifestation of Keith's anxiety over his girlfriend sleeping with Mick Jagger, mixed with a gloomy mood, uh, kind of documenting an oncoming storm. But somewhere in early 1969, the lyrics took a more political turn. Mick Jagger said, quote, Well, it's very rough, very violent era. The Vietnam War. Violence on the screens, pillage and burning. And Vietnam was not war as we knew it in the conventional sense. The thing about Vietnam was that it really wasn't like World War II. And it wasn't like Korea. And it wasn't like the Gulf War. It was a real nasty war. And people didn't like it. People objected. And people didn't want to fight it. That's a kind of end of the world song, really. It's apocalyptic. The whole record's like that, unquote. Musically, Gimme Shelter is a candidate for being one of the best Stone songs of all time. Keith plays all sorts of guitar parts on the song, which gives it that layered, deep sound. The Stones also use a lot of reverb. There's a persistent atmosphere throughout Gimme Shelter that contributes to its depth. The song is also notable because it features an iconic vocal part sung by Mary Clayton. Clayton was well-known as a session singer, and Mick wanted the song to be a sort of duet with a female vocal carrying the chorus. Clayton got a call from Jack Nietzsche late in the evening, inviting her to sing on a Rolling Stones record. She was pregnant, she had hair curlers in, and she was ready for bed, but the band convinced her to come to the studio, just for a few takes, and she agreed. She sang so powerfully that her voice cracked, but the second take she did was a keeper, Tragically, Clayton suffered a miscarriage shortly after the recording of the song, which she later attributed to her energetic performance on Gimme Shelter. Gimme Shelter was a major peak for Clayton's career, but it was forever marred by this tragic event. Clayton said, quote, We lost a little girl. It took me years and years to get over that. You had all the success with Gimme Shelter, and you had the heartbreak with the song. It left a dark taste in my mouth. It was a dark, dark time, unquote. Gimme Shelter is another song that didn't include Brian Jones. Just Mick, Keith, Bill, and Charlie. Brian attended the early sessions for the song, but for whatever reason, he wasn't interested or didn't really feel like he wanted to contribute. These two songs are very rock and roll. And after Beggar's Banquet... These songs were further indication of the direction the Rolling Stones wanted to go in. They wanted to move back towards American music, and Let It Bleed would be a huge step in that direction. The Rolling Stones' musical direction pleased Keith Richards probably more than anyone. He was falling back in love with the blues, but he was also discovering a new fascination with country music. This was a really prolific period for Keith Richards. After replacing Brian as Mick Jagger's complement on stage, he really started to develop his own personality and identity, sort of a dark, psychedelic cowboy, and he really dove deep into American music. Part of this was because, around this time, Keith became really close friends with the new Birds guitarist, Graham Parsons. Graham Parsons joined the Byrds and was a big influence behind their celebrated country album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, in 68. Truly fantastic album. Graham really opened up Keith's eyes to country music. Twangy telecasters, pedal steel, gospel-sounding lyrics. Keith said of Parsons, quote, Graham taught me country music, how it worked, the difference between the Bakersfield style and the Nashville style. I learned the piano from Graham and started writing songs on it. Some of the seeds planted in the country music area are still with me, which is why I can record a duet with George Jones with no compunction at all, But even more importantly, around this time, Keith Richards defined what it meant to sound like Keith Richards, to sound like the Rolling Stones. Keith Richards wasn't a Jimi Hendrix, a Jeff Beck, or an Eric Clapton. He was never really that interested in extended jamming and improvisation. Soloing really wasn't what was driving his interest in music. His interest in the guitar was really about composition, writing songs, riffs, parts, and by this point, he was sort of in a rut with the six-string electric guitar. He said, quote, I had hit kind of a buffer. I just really thought I was not getting anywhere from straight concert tuning. I wasn't learning anything anymore. I wasn't getting some of the sounds I really wanted. Unquote. To compensate, Keith was changing his guitar tunings to open tunings. Essentially, instead of E, A, D, G, B, and E, he would tune the notes of his guitar to the sound of a D chord, or an E chord, so when he strummed, he was playing a chord even if he wasn't touching the fretboard. This is a simple adjustment that really changes the sound and feel of a guitar chord. The first person to introduce Keith to open tuning, and this is something Keith probably wouldn't admit, was actually Brian Jones. Brian had been playing with open tuning since 1962, with his bottleneck slide. But in 68, 69, Ry Cooter introduced Keith to open G tuning, which makes the guitar sound really big when you play chords, and Keith fell in love with the sound immediately. Keith actually took the bottom note off entirely because he didn't think he needed it for the sounds he was trying to get at, and he played an open G tuning with only five strings. He said, quote, The beauty, the majesty of five-string open G tuning for an electric guitar is that you've only got three notes. The other two are octave parts. Only three notes, but because of these different octaves, it fills the whole gap between bass and top notes with sound. It gives you this beautiful resonance and ring, unquote. Keith famously played Open G religiously for the next few decades, and it's what defines the Rolling Stones sound. Start Me Up, Brown Sugar, Happy, Rocks Off, and so many more. That style of playing is Keith Richards' Open G tuning, and it is such a crucial part of the Rolling Stones sound. But there was something else behind Keith Richards' new mojo, which would make him almost as famous as his songs drugs. Until the end of the 1960s, Keith wasn't really a heavy drug user. Some pills, weed, and alcohol here and there, but nothing crazy when you consider that he was in a rock and roll band touring the world. Around 1968, though, Keith and Anita's drug use took a dark turn when they started snorting speedballs, which was a mixture of heroin and cocaine. Speedwalls were pretty popular among a subsection of the music world at the time, and Keith started doing them with people like Graham Parsons and John Lennon. Something about these drugs spoke to Keith in a way that other drugs didn't, mainly because they're extremely addictive, but he also liked that he went into his own little world that was sort of separate from Mick, and he liked the effects it had on his creativity. Keith said, quote, I never thought drugs per se had very much to do with whether I was productive or not. It might have changed a few chords, a few verses here and there, but I never felt any diminishment or extra lift as far as what I was doing was concerned. I didn't look upon smack as an aid or detraction from what I was doing. I probably would have written gimme shelter whether I was on or off the stuff. In certain cases, it helps you become more tenacious about something and follow it further than you would have than if you just threw up your hands and said, I can't figure this out right now. On the stuff, sometimes you would just nag at it and nag at it until you'd got it." Because there was such poor understanding of addiction at the time, nobody really realized what was going on with Keith. But his newfound interest in heroin would quickly blossom into a decade-long addiction that threatened the future of the Stones just as much, if not more, than Brian Jones' drug problems. Most fundamentally, though, When I think about Keith's transition in the late 60s, I see something that a few other Stones historians have pointed out. In a lot of ways, Keith Richards became Brian Jones. This is something Keith likely wouldn't admit, and who knows what goes on in someone's subconscious or psychology, but when Brian Jones formed the Stones in 1962, he really had two things going for him. He had a musical vision and a dark image. Musically, Keith's experimentation with tunings and his obsession with the blues and country mirrors Brian's early devotion to blues purity, the music on which the band was formed. Keith's open tuning and his distinct version of rock and roll added a flavor to the Stones' music throughout the 1970s, much like Brian's experimentation with exotic instruments and his bottleneck slide playing did in the 1960s. Keith even went on to take Brian's job he became the band's rhythm guitarist, discovering he was much more comfortable playing with Bill and Charlie's groove than soloing up front with Mick Jagger. But most importantly, Keith took on Brian's mystique, the dark, druggy anti-hero of the group. He probably didn't do it intentionally, but I think there's an undeniable influence there. Brian was the original rock star of the group. He was a real rebel. It was Brian that made the band seem dangerous, If you remember, Keith was totally enamored by Brian Jones in the early days. They were best friends, and they remained pretty close until the Anita situation. Keith, whether he admits it or not, likely looked up to Brian in a really formative way. And when Brian faded away into that drug-fueled oblivion, Keith Richards became the Stones' resident drug addict. Keith became the guy who was against the law and on the run. He was the guy that parents hated and he gave the Rolling Stones that dark edge. The spirit of Brian Jones lived on through Keith Richards for decades, as Keith became the new Brian. (laughs) Through the spring and summer of 1969, the Stones were hard at work on Let It Bleed. Mick and Keith wrote one of their most unique compositions, Midnight Rambler, which was a true Jagger Richards song, Jagger wrote the lyrics about the Boston Strangler, and Keith wrote the music to be a sort of, in his words, a blues opera. Keith actually says that Midnight Rambler is the best example of a Mick Jagger and Keith Richards song. Jagger later described the writing process, quote, "...that's a song Keith and I really wrote together. We were on holiday in Italy, in this very beautiful hill town of Positano for a few nights. Why we should write such a dark song in this beautiful sunny place... I really don't know. We wrote everything there. The tempo changes, everything. And I'm playing the harmonica in these little cafes, and there's Keith with the guitar. Midnight Rambler became one of the band's most exciting live songs for the next few years. During the spring of 1969, the Stones also wrote and recorded one of their most explicit songs, Let It Bleed, which has the most obvious references to sex and drugs, probably out of every other song in their catalog. This is another one with just Mick, Keith, Bill, and Charlie, along with Ian Stewart on piano. The band also cut a beautiful version of a Robert Johnson blues standard, Love in Vain, which would become one of their live staples throughout the 1970s. The band was working on an album of really great, new, exciting rock and roll, and they were dying to take their new music on the road. Touring was so different than it was in the early 1960s. The audiences had really matured, and there was a new appreciation for live music and watching an act perform. The Stones felt that they were destined to explore this, but there was something holding them back. Brian. The Stones couldn't trust him to perform, and he wasn't really legally allowed to go on tour. Brian's already diminished contributions to Beggar's Banquet seemed extraordinary compared to his work on Let It Bleed. He played only two tracks on the album, despite being in the band for the making of more than half of it. He adds some congas to Midnight Rambler, and he plays the auto harp on You Got the Silver, which you can't really even hear in the final mix. By 1969, Brian had lost all of his confidence, and he had ceased to function as a musician in the Rolling Stones. He would show up to sessions completely out of it, and most of the time he'd simply be unable to play anything. Keith said of Brian, quote, It's strange given the fact that we had to pull the plug on Brian in the studio three years earlier, when he was lying in a coma beside his buzzing amp, to be reminded that he was still playing on tracks in early 1969. Auto-harp on You Got the Silver, percussion on Midnight Rambler. Where did that come from? A last flare from The Shipwreck. We didn't even expect him to be there if he turned up. We'd find something for him to do. I'd ask him, what do you think about this? Do you want to put something over this? By then, he was already in bye-bye land, Up until this point, the status quo was fine. Just let Brian do whatever he's doing. But suddenly, Brian's membership in the band became unsustainable. Brian was unhappy with his role, too, and he wasn't pleased with the direction the band was going in. People often say that Brian was the one who wanted to stay true to the band's roots, but that's not really true. He was the one who brought them further and further away from the blues, and when the Stones started to get back to basics, he was ready to leave the group. Brian was unhappy with the Stones, the writing process, and the success the band had that wasn't attributed to him. The Stones were also very unhappy with Brian. Until now, The Stones, like I said, they didn't really mind Brian's lack of participation in the studio. Keith didn't mind playing all the guitars, and they'd just gotten used to the status quo. But the Stones now wanted to play live. And in just a few short years, the world of touring was a completely new scene. Fans had grown up just enough that they weren't screaming and fainting in theaters anymore. Now, they were hippies. They were going to music festivals and really listening to the music. The Stones were determined to carve out a place as one of the great live acts in this new world of touring. Playing their new music for a new audience was fundamental to what they wanted to do. However, this was simply impossible to do with Brian Jones. The band needed two strong guitar players to play the several guitar parts on each record. Keith simply couldn't improvise Brian's parts like he used to when the audience wasn't listening. There were two very distinct rhythm and leads parts, and they needed someone fit to task. Brian couldn't be counted on to even show up, let alone learn and play all these new parts. As a guitarist, Brian had really atrophied, and he was stuck in the 60s. Nothing about his style really indicated that he was progressing to become a 70s guitar player like Keith was. But that was beside the point. Brian was just too much of a flight risk, even if they could trust him to play the material. There was just no guarantee that he would even show up. Any given show, they risked Brian bailing, not showing up, getting arrested, spending the night in the hospital, or just being way too out of it to be involved. But even if the band decided that they were willing to take these risks and stay loyal to Brian Jones, it wasn't possible because Brian was in a mess of legal problems. Brian was unable to tour because of his drug busts that made it impossible for him to get a US work visa. His drug busts were simply too numerous and too severe, and the United States wasn't going to let him in. Touring in the UK wasn't enough for the band, and Europe wasn't going to be any less strict about Brian. Brian simply couldn't tour anymore with the Rolling Stones. So, in the spring of 1969, Mick, Keith, Charlie, and Bill all agreed that there was no way Brian Jones could continue to be a member of the band, and they needed another guitarist to replace him. Bill Wyman, who was Brian's biggest ally in all of this, said, quote, The time bomb that had been ticking under Brian simply had to be detonated. For some two years, not only had he been physically vulnerable and battered by his drug busts, but within the Stones, he was sad, isolated, and obviously unhappy, unquote. Charlie Watts said, quote, I remember Mick and Keith saying, We can't go on like this. We need another guy. And we did need somebody else, unquote. The Stones decided to find a replacement before they made any personnel changes regarding Brian. There were a few contenders to join the band. Names like Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton were thrown around. Who knows if these were serious suggestions? But the Stones also considered people like Rye Cooter, the sly guitar aficionado. But Rye was a lone wolf, and honestly, he probably would never have joined the band. The only serious candidate was John Mayall's guitarist, the 20-year-old Mick Taylor. Mick Taylor had an unusual story on how he arrived on the scene. When Taylor was just 16 years old, he went to go see his idol, Eric Clapton, play with John Mayall and the Bluesbreakers. Much to Taylor's disappointment, Clapton didn't show up that night. Not that unusual for Eric Clapton during this period. Halfway through the show, Taylor asked John Mayall if he could sit in for Eric Clapton. He was a huge fan of the band, so all he needed was a guitar because he knew all of their songs. Mayall was hesitant because Taylor was so young, but Mayall reluctantly agreed, and Taylor played pretty impressively for the second half of the show. I mean, here was a 16-year-old kid who stepped in for Clapton and totally wowed the audience. Now, because of Mick Taylor's famously quiet and reserved demeanor, which we'll talk more about, it's surprising that he actually went up and did this. It's actually pretty impressive. What's not surprising was his quick exit. Just a few seconds after the band played the last note, Mick Taylor put his guitar down and slipped away, and John Mayall never got a chance to speak with him. Eric Clapton left John Mayall's band shortly after this, and he was replaced by Peter Green. After just a few months, Peter Green left to form Fleetwood Mac, so Mayall was again without a guitarist. Mayall placed an ad in a music paper for a guitar player, hoping that Mick Taylor, the kid that played with him that night, would answer. Luckily, Mick Taylor saw the ad, contacted John Mayall, and was offered the job on the spot. Taylor spent the next two years touring and recording with John Mayall, a job that he adored. In 1969, though, Mayall decided he wanted to do something completely different, and he overhauled the Bluesbreakers and turned them into an acoustic-based band, leaving Mick Taylor unemployed at the ripe old age of 19. Ian Stewart knew John Mayall, who told him of Mick Taylor's situation. Stu, knowing that the Stones were thinking of replacing Brian— Invited Mick Taylor to play a Stones session. Taylor didn't know it was an audition. He just thought it was a session gig with the Stones. But that's the unusual story of how Mick Taylor, one of the greatest guitar players ever in my opinion, and the guitarist who completely changed the Rolling Stones' style, ended up on the Rolling Stones' radar. When Mick Taylor got to the session on June 1st of 1969, he was put to work immediately on one of the Stones' most iconic songs, Honky Tonk Women. Bill Wyman remembers Taylor's audition, quote, "...Taylor sat in with us for the first time, and his empathy was clear. He was a superb, natural player. His arrival coincided with one of our finest tracks. The new song marked Taylor's debut and was quite an entry for him," unquote. I think the Stones had kind of decided that Mick Taylor would be their next guitarist probably before they'd even met him. I mean, they knew John May's band, and they probably thought, if this kid is good enough to replace Eric Clapton, he's probably good enough to replace Brian Jones. He was also 20 and virtually unknown, so his role would really fit in the Rolling Stones. He wasn't going to demand too much creative power like an Eric Clapton or a Jimmy Page or a Rye Cooter would, and he also wouldn't outshine Keith Richards or Mick Jagger and wouldn't upset the onstage dynamic. In the early days, Brian really gave Mick Jagger a run for his money. And Mick Taylor, with his quiet, unassuming demeanor, was a perfect complement to the band. He was just going to kind of stand there and play guitar like Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts. Bill Wyman said, quote, Mick Taylor seemed custom-built for the Stones, unquote. The Stones had stopped short of offering the job to Taylor that day, but they knew that they'd found their guy. The only thing left to do was to fire the guitarist who he'd be replacing, to cut ties with the original Rolling Stone himself. Keith Richards wanted to rip off the Band-Aid, but Mick Jagger was more conflicted about this decision. He had the toughest relationship with Brian, but for Mick, the Stones were everything, and severing the band would permanently alter it. In the end, he knew that there was no other option. It simply couldn't go on, Anyway, by this point, Brian Jones had sort of seen the writing on the wall. He started to hear rumors that the Stones were rehearsing with other members, and he knew that talks of Tor really couldn't involve him. He told himself and others that he wasn't interested in the Stones anymore. Brian, who had gained a substantial amount of weight and looked kind of shaggier than ever, had become also kind of reclusive. He spent most of his time at his new country home, Cotchford Farm, an old Tudor-style house whose previous owner was the author of Winnie the Pooh, A.A. Milne. Brian was trying to turn Cotchford Farm into his paradise, so there was a near-constant team of construction workers during the day, and Brian spent most of his time inside with his new girlfriend, hidden away from the stones, police, and fame. But on June 18, 1969, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Charlie Watts went over to Cotchford Farm to inform Brian of his firing. Charlie, who was much closer and sympathetic to Brian, joined for the purposes of diplomacy, to show him that it wasn't just Mick and Keith deciding, but that it really was a band's decision. Brian answered the door and let his bandmates in. Mick did most of the talking and informed Brian about the decision. Brian, as the Stones' founder, would get a lump sum of £100,000 and £20,000 for every year the Stones stayed together. They also agreed to let Brian break the story to the press and tell them that he quit. Brian agreed and nodded along, assuring the guys that they'd remain friends. Mick Jagger said, quote, We carried Brian for quite a long time. We put up with his tirades and his not turning up for over a year. So it wasn't like suddenly we just said, fuck you, you didn't turn up for a show, you're out. It was a very difficult decision to make. This is someone you spent the beginning of the band with, I mean it was horrible. We said to Brian, this isn't working out, and he sort of said, yes, it isn't. It was very sad. I felt awful afterwards. I felt really terrible. He was the author of his own misfortunes, really. You think, oh, surely we could have done something, or more than just that, unquote. After about a half an hour, Mick, Keith, and Charlie left, and Brian seemed nonchalant about the whole situation. But when he shut the door behind them, he sobbed. His dream was over. Brian's band, the Rolling Stones, weren't Brian's band anymore. It was official. Brian promptly released a statement saying, quote, I no longer see eye to eye with the others over the discs we are cutting. We no longer communicate musically. The Stones' music is not to my taste anymore. The work of Mick and Keith has progressed at a tangent, at least to my ways of thinking. I have a desire to play my own brand of music rather than that of others, no matter how much I appreciate their musical concepts. We had a friendly meeting and agreed that an amicable termination, temporary or permanent, was the only answer. The only solution was to go our separate ways, but we will still remain friends. I love those fellows, unquote. Mick confirmed Brian's press release with one of his own, saying, quote, "...the only solution to our problem was for Brian to leave us. We have parted on the best of terms. We will continue to be friends, and we're certainly going to meet socially in the future. There's no question of us breaking up a friendship. Friendships like ours don't just break up like that." Unquote. The press releases were definitely flowery ways to describe Brian's firing, However, there was a surprising level of goodwill between the band and Brian after his departure. Brian decided he wanted to stop taking drugs and get his life back together. He reached out to several people like Alexis Corner, Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon, Eric Burden, uh, and others about getting a band together. Brian was obsessed with Creedence Clearwater Revival. He loved their simple, stripped-back songs and blues rock, songs like Proud Mary, Suzy Q, I Put a Spell on You. Brian wanted to make music like CCR, and he was really trying to put a band together to do it. Brian even went to the Stones recording sessions a couple times, telling them all about the music he was gonna make. Sadly, Brian's post-Stone's career never blossomed because of the tragic end to his life just one month later. For a few days there, it really looked like Brian was trying to get his life back together. That's why it was even more shocking, when just under a month after he was fired, the Rolling Stones learned about his death. On the night of July 2nd, 1969, Brian Jones was hanging out with his girlfriend, Anna Wolin, and his builder, Frank Thorogood, who had been staying at Brian's house for a few days with their friend, Janet Lawson. That night, Brian had quite a bit to drink, along with some heavy-duty downers. Around 10 p.m., he and Thorogood decided to go for a swim. Janet Lawson said that Brian was in no condition to swim, he had trouble keeping his balance, and he was really out of it but he went ahead and swam anyway. A few minutes into the swim, Frank left to go get a towel, leaving Brian alone. Janet Lawson returned to the pool to see Brian face down at the bottom of the deep end, not moving. She called Frank and Anna, who struggled to retrieve Brian from the pool, and performed CPR on him as they waited for the medics to come. At this point, Brian may have still had a pulse, but other than that, he was totally unresponsive and he was dead by the time he got to the hospital. In the early morning hours of July 3, 1969, Brian Jones was pronounced dead at the age of 27. The cause of death was, famously, death by misadventure. A whole bunch of conspiracy theories surround Brian Jones's death, even to this day, thanks to the immediate tabloid speculation and juicy gossip books that came out in the decades that followed, most notably, Brian's driver, Tom Keylock, alleged that Frank Thorogood confessed to having murdered Brian on his deathbed, but this account has been widely discredited. While there is some vagueness about the whole thing, it seems the only plausible explanation is that Brian did in fact die by misadventure when he drowned in his swimming pool that night. But that morning on July 3rd, 1969, the press broke the story that Brian Jones was dead, the original Rolling Stone the 60s icon, had passed away at the age of 27. Immediately, there was an outpouring of love for Brian. Jim Morrison and Pete Townsend both wrote poems for Brian. Jimi Hendrix dedicated a performance to him. George Harrison said in a newspaper, When I met Brian, I liked him quite a lot. He was a good fellow, you know. I got to know him very well, and I felt very close to him. You know how it is with some people. You feel for them feel near to them. He was born February 28th, 1942. I was born February 25th, 1943. He was with Mick and Keith, and I was with John and Paul in the groups. So there was a sort of understanding between the two of us. The positions were similar, and I often seemed to meet him in his times of trouble. There was nothing the matter with him that a little extra love wouldn't have cured. I don't think he had enough love or understanding." He was very nice and sincere and sensitive, and we must remember that's what he was." The band was in the studio that night, and they were told what happened. There was an immediate wave of shock, guilt, and sadness. No matter what happened, the band had more or less grown up with Brian, and he was a near-constant fixture in their lives. He was more like a family member to them than a friend. Mick and Keith declined to go to Brian's funeral for reasons that never really seemed that clear, but Bill and Charlie were there representing the Stones. The real tribute to Brian, though, was the concert that they had been planning for a few months. It was supposed to be Mick Taylor's grand debut, and the first time the Stones played live since 1968. It was going to be a free concert in Hyde Park in London— on July 5th, 1969, which just happened to be two days after Brian's death. Mick quickly announced that the Hyde Park concert would be a memorial concert for Brian Jones. Jagger said, quote, We will do the concert for Brian. We have thought about it an awful lot and feel he would have wanted it to go on. He was music. I understand how many people will feel, but we are doing it because of him, unquote. Mick Jagger also said, quote, I'm wordless, sad, and shocked. Something has gone. We were like a pack, like a family, we stones. I just say my prayers for him. I hope he becomes blessed. I hope he is finding peace. I really want him to. On July 5th, the band played to half a million people at Hyde Park. It was Mick Taylor's first gig and the band's first concert in years. They were nervous and sad. And Mick began the concert by reading a poem for Brian. Hyde Park was really the end of an era, as well as the birth of a new one. Brian Jones, the founder of the Rolling Stones, and one of the most important figures in rock and roll history, was dead. And the band would never be the same. But the new band, the 1970s rock stars, had a new look, a new guitarist, and a new sound. The Rolling Stones were reborn. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow Rock Band's podcast on Instagram at Rock Band's podcast. And share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right. I'll see you next time.